Okay, we're starting here on the top of by the Mishnah. Mishnah says, person throws an object and then remembers that it's Shabbat after it's left his hand. So again, if we thought about this earlier in the Masefta, we discussed this back in the first parak about certain malachot that involve a process, that they're not immediately accomplished. And therefore, there's the possibility of changing mind, having things happen in between. One of those is carrying or throwing, because it has two requirements. One is akira, and the other one is hanacha. So here there's a possibility you can have the akira, you can throw the object when a person does not know it's Shabbat or forgotten that it's Shabbat. On the other hand, he remembers prior to hanacha, prior to it landing. So here the Mishnah mentions a case where he's a rake, he throws it. And he remembers after it's left his hand. In order to be a shogeg, the Mishnah is going to say this in a second, one has to be a shogeg, has to forget that it's Shabbat from the beginning of the Malacha to the end of the Malacha, or at the important points of the Malacha, which is the Akira and the Hanacha. Right now, the Gemara assumes that this is all one case, which is then Kaltacher. After he remembers it, someone else catches it. Kaltakelev, or a dog catches it. Ocean is Rifa, or gets burnt up. Patur. In that case, he is patur. Zarak lasot chabura throws it in order to injure someone. Ben ba'adam, ben behema, whether it's a man or an animal. Beniskar achlon asit chabura. And he recalls, before it does the damage to this individual, he remembers that it's Shabbat. Again, patur. Zaklal, here's the principle that the Mishnah is laying out. Anybody, when we're dealing with chata'ot, chata'ot are brought for shogeg for forgetting. Einan chayavim, achidei tchilatan. That's the beginning. And the end are done in that same state of mind of forgetting that it's Shabbat. On the other hand, if they start out with Zeshogeg with forgetting, and in the end they remember it's Shabbat, so then it becomes not necessarily intentional, but there's an awareness that it is Shabbat. And the other way around, or he knows it's Shabbat when he starts out, and he forgets along the way. Patur until you have both the beginning and the end, when we're dealing with these melachot, like carrying, where there are two component parts to it. Now the Gemara says, what we would infer from this Mishnah is, Hanacha chayav, that if he landed it, it would be chayav. The way we read the Mishnah, again, it was a rake, he throws it, then he remembers after he's left his hand, and it lands, either someone else grabs it out of the air, Zah grabs it, or it gets burnt up. Inference from that would be, if it just landed naturally, then you would be chayav. Like Mar says, Valo Niskar. Then he remembered. How could he be Chayav if he remembered and then it lands? But it's not. And our Mishnah says, So how could the case in the Reisha be a case where if he remembers and it lands, that he's still Chayav? Case of the Seifa is a case of a clasp or a bolt of some sort that's used to hold the loads on the donkey. Matno is a string. It's tied to a rope. So in the case where it's tied to a rope and you throw the object, you still have control over the object. You have the ability to recoil the object to pull it back to you. If you're still in control of the object, then remembering has impact. On the other hand, if you've lost control of the object, you've set it in motion, and now you cannot reverse the motion, it doesn't really matter what you're thinking when it lands, because it's going to land whether you want it to or don't want it to, because you've already given the power, the koach, into this object to do what it's supposed to do. So right now, the Gemara is assuming that there's a difference between retaining control over the object and releasing control of the object. If you release control of the object, then your mind frame doesn't matter anymore. Whatever you're thinking is irrelevant. Threw it when it was a shogay, 
it's going to land based on that original throwing, and you're considered a shogeg the whole way through. On the other hand, if you retain control of the object by having a string or something that could reverse the action or stop the action, then remembering halfway through will have impact on it. Nagmar says, wait a minute, lichto matna ogdobiadohu. That's tied onto his hand. Pull one of holding it in your hand. You still have the string. It's like you're walking with it. It doesn't, there's no release then. There was never any akira because you're still holding onto the string. How could that be the case? So Nagmar says, all right, you're right. Forget it. That's tied to his hand. That we're not going to discuss. But, it's a case where he wanted to do damage. He threw it in order to do damage. The assumption being that once you release it, that's the end of the action. You don't really want it to land, you want it to do damage. Where it says, Hanami Tanina. Our Mishnah already says that also. So our Mishnah discusses that case as well and says, You are Patur in that case. The case is a case where you are carrying it. The latter case, or the Zaklal in the Mishnah, is a case where he's physically carrying it. So the difference between the Reisha case, where you release it and you lose control over it, and that's why if it lands, you're going to be Chayav, even if you remember it's Shabbat. And the Seifa case, where you have to have it be Shogeg in the beginning and the end. So the bad case is a case where you carry it. You physically carry it, the Dalet Amot, in Rishut Arabim. Because at that point, any moment, you could reverse or stop the action. You can prevent the Malacha from being completed by simply not stopping, or stopping prior to the time that you are chayav. In that case, you need to be a shogeg in the beginning, a shogeg in the end. As opposed to the ratio of the Mishnah, where you're zorek, where you throw it, there, since you've lost control over it, you'll be chayav as long as you were shogeg when you released it. And then, when it lands, it doesn't matter what you're thinking anymore, because you're really not controlling the object anymore. The malacha is done, whether or not you remember or don't remember about Shabbat. So that's the distinction that Rabbah is drawing. We've rejected two other suggestions. One suggestion was that he threw an object and he still had the string in his hand. That, the Gemara says, is the equivalent of holding it in your hand. You still have the string. It's like you're walking with it. It doesn't. There's no release then. There was never any akira because you're still holding onto the string. And the Gemara rejected about chabura when you release it to injure someone, that even though you don't need it to land, nevertheless, you need it to carry out your action, which is to damage someone. And if you remember before it does that damage, then the Mishnah seems to indicate that it's not considered to be a shogeg. So Rabbah draws this distinction between where you're physically carrying it and at any moment you could stop the action versus the ratio where you've released the object and you have no longer have any control over it. The Mishnah concludes, this is the principle. Now, if the Mishnah is laying out a principle, it should have some reference back to the first half of the Mishnah. It gives you an example, it gives you a halacha, and it says, this is the principle. To say that this principle excludes that case doesn't make so much sense, which is what Rav is suggesting now. The first case of the Mishnah is not included in the general principle stated by the latter half of the Mishnah, because Zrika is alone, and the latter half of the Mishnah is not about Mavir, when you actually physically carry it. So how could it be that the Zaklau that the Mishnah concludes with, this is the principle we learn, has nothing to do with the examples that it gave prior in the Mishnah? That doesn't make so much sense. Rav says, Tarte Tani. There are two things written in the Mishnah. Again, this would have been the simplest way to read the Mishnah up front. Person who throws it and then remembers after it's left his hand. Period. Then, a person who throws an object and without remembering. Someone else grabs it. 
or a dog grabs it. And all these cases you're patur, but for different reasons. In the first case you're patur because you remembered before it landed. In the latter three cases here, is because it never landed. Nothing to do with remembering or not remembering. But now you can't draw the inference that we did before. The inference before was, if it landed, you would be chayav. True, over here you'd be chayav when it landed because you didn't remember. You would have been shogeg from beginning to end. And that's why, if it landed, you would be chayav. So by separating the first case in the Mishnah from those next three cases, then you cannot make the inference that bothered us before. And that's the way Rova reads it now. Inami, the other cases, lo nizgar. He has no recollection. For a different reason. Not because he remembered, but because it was caught by others. There was no hanacha here. You did not have the landing that you anticipated. It was cut off. Your throw was cut off by someone else. Therefore, there is no hanacha. And now you infer, oh, if it did land, he would be chayav. Of course, if it landed, he'd be chayav, because he didn't remember. He was a shogig then from beginning to end. That's the way Rabbah solves the problem, by reading the Mishnah in what seems to be the most simplest way to read the Mishnah. Rashi says the Mishnah is actually missing words. And truthfully, it's not really missing words. He just wants to reread the Mishnah, so he indicates that it's missing words. Person who releases it, throws it, and then remembers after it's left his hand. The inference that we made before in the beginning of the Gemara. Ravashi's gone back to reading it as one case. When you remembered it, and in a case where you remembered and someone else caught it, remembered it, and a dog caught it, or remembered it and it got burnt up. And the inference that we drew before is true now, which is that if it landed by itself, you would have been chayav, even though you remembered. Case in that case is when he forgets again. He remembered and he forgot. If he doesn't forget again, Ravashi solves it a different way by saying that the case where you make the inference that he is chayav once he's released it is only a case where if he threw it, he remembers that it's Shabbat and then he forgets again that Shabbat and then it lands. In that case, the tzchila and sof are bishogeg. Since the tzchila and sof are bishogeg, that's why when it lands naturally, you will be chayav. If it's cut off by the dog, by the person, or by the fire, that's why you're not going to be chayav because you didn't have a hanacha. You're lacking in the malacha. Both according to Rava and Ravashi, in order to be chayav for a shogeg, you need three things. You need akira, and you need a hanacha. That's a given. To do the malacha of carrying or throwing, you need to have akira and hanacha. Second thing you have to have is you have to have a bishogeg. The Akira has to be Bishogeg, and the Anacha has to be Bishogeg. Rava generates that by simply saying that the cases are separate in the first half of the Mishnah, and therefore the first case talks about a case where you forgot in the beginning, so you have an Akira Bishogeg, but it lands after you remember it, so that's B'mezid, and you no longer can be Chayav Chatat. Then you have three more cases where you have an Akira Bishogeg, you have quote-unquote a Hanacha Bishogeg, because you don't remember anything, but you don't really have anacha. Your lacking is an anacha because it doesn't land. These people caught it or cut it off. That's rava. And if it landed by itself, enochanami, you'd be chayav. Because then you would have all the components. You have akira b'shogeg and anacha b'shogeg. Ravashi reads it that he remembered along the way here. He remembers, blocks it from when it's landing being chayav. And in addition to that, he remembers and it was cut off by someone else. The inference from that would be that if it wasn't cut off by someone else, you'd be chayav, even though you remembered. Well, then we're missing something here. We have an akira b'shogeg. But we have hanacha, but a hanacha that's not bishogeg. Ravashi solves that problem by saying that the hanacha was also bishogeg. The remembering happened in the middle. You remembered in between the time that you released it and the time that it landed, you remembered. But when you released it and it landed, you do wear a shogeg. You did not remember with Shabbat, and that's how he solves the problem of the Mishnah. In the end, they both 
basically come to the same conclusion, which is you need a kirabishogeg and an achabishogeg in order to be chayavachatat, like the general principle that's laid out in the Mishnah. Zeaklau, this is the principle of the Mishnah, kochaybetot, itmar, shteamot bishogeg, shteamot bimezid. What's two amot bishogeg, two amot bimezid, and shteamot bishogeg, and then there are two amot bishogeg. Rabba amar patur, rova amar chayav. Rabbi says you're patur in this case, Rabbi says you're chayav. Rabbi amar patur, afilu Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi says you are patur even according to Rabbi Gamliel. Damar eni dialachatzi shior. Rabbi Gamliel, who we bumped into earlier in the Masechta, says that you cannot have an acknowledgement or understanding of Shabbat when you're halfway through. Yediyah b'chatzi shior is not considered to be a yediyah. You can only have a yediyah after you've had a complete shior. In the middle, to have a yediyah doesn't change the facts. And you remain a shogeg in that case, if you forget again. That yediyah in the middle won't split it up. So he says, even according to Rabbi Gamliel, who says, any yediyah chatzi shior, nevertheless, over here you'll be patur, because hotam dehugi gamar shiura b'shogeg gamar. Over there, you remembered in the middle, first he ate a chatzi kazait of something. And then he remembers that he's not supposed to be eating chalif, forgets again and eats another chatzi zayit of chalif. According to Rabbi Gamliel, those two chatzi zaytim are mitzaref. They join together and make a single kazayit. Because remembering halfway through, a kazayit is not called remembering. It's not enough to separate them into two separate chatot. Therefore, you chayav a chatat according to Rabbi Gamliel. But that's a case because when you finish the shiur, when you finish the kazayit, you forgot. You were a shogeg at that moment that you forgot it. Avahacha, over here, to bemezid, Lo, over here, when he completes the violation here, he's a mezid. What's the violation on Shabbat? Mavir dalad amot b'shut Here he walked the first two amot b'shogeg, and then the subsequent two amot b'mezid. So when he's walked a full four amot, he hits the four amot at the point that he is a mezid. So therefore, he's not completing this b'shogeg. He's not completing the carrying b'shogeg. Yes, he has an additional two amot afterwards b'shogeg. But when he reaches the threshold of what's called a malachah and Shabbat for Amot, he is b'mezid, he has the idea at that point in time. And the idea at that point in time ruins it and makes it that they are two separate, two Amot in the beginning and two Amot to the end are completely separate. We're not going to join them together. Ubimai, what's the situation in the case here? Ibizareik, if he threw it, then Shogegu. If he threw it, then when it, he released it, he was a Shogeg, because the first two Amot were Shogeg. And when it landed, he was a Shogeg, because the latter two Amot were Shogeg. So it can't be a case of Zoreik. It must be a case where he's Physically carrying it. He's physically carrying it, and therefore he reaches the threshold of four amot while he is a mezid, when he remembers that it is Shabbat. Since he remembers it Shabbat, even Rabbi Gamil says there's a new deal of Hatzishir, will agree here that you separate between the two, two amot, and that's why you are a patur, according to Rabbah. Rava, on the other hand, there's a mistake here in the Gemara, the Girsa says Rabbah, but that means then Rabbah is the author of both positions. But Rava Amar Chayav, Rava says you are Chayav, Afilu le Rabbanon. Even if going to Rabbanan who say, Nevertheless, over here you are Chayav. Over there, he had the ability to change the situation because it was in his control. Over here, it's not in his control, and therefore, that's not the case. What's the case here? If he's walking physically with the object, he has the ability to reverse it at any moment. The case that Rava must be speaking about is a case where it is Zorek. He threw it. So when he threw it, he releases it bishogeg, and it lands bishogeg. So even according to the Chachamim, who say you have yediyah chatzi shiur, and you can interrupt an action, that's only when you're in control of the action. If you've released the object, you're no longer in control of the action, and it starts bishogeg, ends bishogeg, then you're going to be chayav. It's akin to what Ravashi said before in the Mishnah. 
If you have a shogeg, you remember in the middle, but before it lands, you become a shogeg again. So that's exactly what happens here. He's a shogeg for the first two amot. He's a shogeg for the latter two amot, which is the akira na'anakha. He remembers in the middle, while it's flying in the air, that has no bearing on it. So in the end, it turns out that Rav and Rabba are not arguing. Even though it seemed that they are arguing, the truth is they're talking about two different cases. Rabba, who says you're patur, is talking about a case when you're physically walking with it. Rabba, who says you're chayab, is talking about a case where you threw it. And therefore they really agree. They just spoke about different manifestations of this case. Of tuamot b'shogeg, tuamot b'mezid, tuamot b'shogeg. One of them says it's a case where you walked it, that's Rabba, and that's why you're patur. And Rabba says it's a case where you threw it, and that's why you are chayab. And they would agree to each other. That's how you can see, maybe the Girsa got mixed up that way, that Rabba made both statements, because in, tr- in the end, the truth is that they're not irreconcilable. You can have both opinions, because you can say Patur and Chayah, because one's talking about carrying, and one is talking about throwing. So now the Gemara says, Omar Rabba, and again, the change of the Girsa is Omar Rabba, Zarak, Venachah Befiyah Keleh, throws it, and it lands in the mouth of the dog. Obepiyah Kivshan, or it lands in the stove, or in the oven, Chayah, which is in direct contradiction to our Mishnah, Vainan Tanan. Then our Mishnah say, Kauta Acher, Kauta Keler, Voshnisrafa Patur. So, Hotam Delomikavi. In the cases of our Mishnah, that's not where he intended it to land. He intended to land and got cut off by one of these individuals, or the dog, or got burnt up before it landed. Hocha de Kamakavi. Case here that Rav is stating is a case where he intended to have the dog catch it. You threw the ball to the dog, intending for the ball to be caught by the dog. That is considered to be Anacha. So, even though generally the mouth of the dog is not considered to be Anacha, because he doesn't have the requisite 4 by 4 tfachim to make it a place that is anacha. So if he cuts it off, that's not called anacha. On the other hand, if you intend for it to land in the mouth of the dog, we have what you call achshaveh. That you have made it significant. Because that's where you want it to land, that becomes now a significant landing place. It's as if it has requisite 4 by 4 tfachim, because that's the way you intended for it to happen. The Tosavot over here just notes in the Rav's statement of a zarak v'nacha b'fiyah kelev, he says that the girsha shouldn't be zarak v'nachah b'fiyah kelev. Because nachah means something that happens by itself. Something that happens passively. And so therefore he likes, he wants the girsha to read zarak b'fiyah kelev. He threw it to the mouth, or into the mouth of the dog, in order to show that it was intent, versus that it happened passively or was cut off by the dog. It doesn't change the halacha, he just thinks that the lashon of the gemara should be more exact about exactly what transpired in the statement of Rav over here. Alright, so now the Gemara continues. Amar Abibi Barabai Afananami Tanina. We have a Mishnah that supports that understanding. Person can eat a single kezayit and end up being chayav. Four chataot ve'asham echad. And in addition to that, an asham. What's the case? It's a person who is tamay. He has tumata guf. Shachau. And he ate helev. He ate fats. V'hunotar. And there was also left over from a korban. Mina muktashim. That was from something that was Kodesh or the Emurim. Talking about an animal that was brought as a korban. Animal was brought as a korban, even if it is Kodeshim Kalim. Or whether it's Kodeshim Kodeshim, the Emurim. The innards, the fats, have to end up on the Mizbeach. And that means, even if a Kohen eats them, he's out of line, he's a Zar. For this, because they belong on the Mizbeach, not eaten by the Kohenim. And so because of that, he has a problem of what we call Mi'ilah. He has now misappropriated something that belonged to Hekdesh. You misappropriate something that belongs to Hekdesh, you are chayav in asham mi'ilot for misappropriating hegdesh. And that's where the asham comes from. In addition to that, this person has tumata guf. He is tamay. And he's consuming something that is kodesh. You eat a korban. When you are tamay, you are chayav a chatat for that because that is a chayuv karet when you have tumata guf to consume the kodeshim. In addition to that, he happens to be eating chalev. 
Chalev, which is the fats that are asur, even in a chulin animal. And it's no tarts. After the time period where this korban was kasher to be eaten, or it should have been on the Mizbeach, and therefore he's consuming no tar. So he's in violation of these items that make you chayav karet. If you eat chalev, you chayav karet. You eat no tar, you chayav karet. And you eat kodashim, betumatagoof, you're also chayav karet. In addition to that, it was on Yom HaKippurim. Eat on Yom Kippur, you're chayav karet. So here you have four chayuvei karet that he does. He did a bishogeg, a chayuv karet that's done bishogeg ends up with a chatat. So that's how you get the four chatot here. For these four chiyuvei karet that he does, bishogeg. And the one asham is for the mi'ivah, the misappropriating of hegdesh. For Rabbi Omer, Shabbat. What happens if it's Shabbat in addition to that? Votziyo b'fiv. And he walked out with it in his mouth. Chayav. Then he'd also be chayav. Amrlo, enu min hashem. It's not for the same reason. The Tanakhama, or the rejection of a mayor's opinion, is not because he's wrong. He happens to be right. If he's walking out in his mouth on Shabbat, he'd be carrying on Shabbat. Carrying on Shabbat would result in another chatat. And he's right, there would be five chataot over here. But the rejection of Ramirez's opinion does not derive from the fact that it's not a chatat, that he's chayav, but rather from the fact that it's lomin hashem. Lomin hashem means that it's not for the same violation. The other things you're chayav for because you swallowed, you ate on this day of Yom Kippur, and you ate these items. The reason you're chayav on Shabbat is not because you're eating, it's because you're carrying it in your mouth. It's a different violation than the eating and so they reject Rabbi Meir for that reason. Not because he's wrong, but because they want to say, in one action, in one violation, which is the eating, you are then culpable for all these items. That's not true here. The true here, you have to add another dimension, which is the Hotza'ah dimension, which is not what the Gemara is after. The interesting thing is, Rashi says, how come you're not chayav for carrying on Yom HaKippurim? We know that you're also not allowed to carry on Yom Kippur, just like you're not allowed to carry on Shabbat. So Rashi claims, this is according to the Mandamar, that in Eru Hotza'alim Yom HaKippurim. It's machloket in the Gemara, whether there's a din of carrying on Yom Kippur or not. This is according to Rashi. And therefore, this is according to the opinion that carrying on Yom Kippur is not problematic. And that's why they have to bring in Shabbat in order to be chayav for carrying. Other hand, Tosafot says they can't be the explanation over here because that's not the maskan of the Gemara over there. Maskan over there is that Yom Kippur is chayav for carrying. When they say Hotza'ah, Rabbi Meir is saying that af for Hotza'ah on Shabbat. Not just for Yom Kippur, but also for Shabbat. But mayor wants to add in both the carrying of Yom Kippur and the carrying of Shabbat. If he carries on Yom Kippur, of course, there's a fifth one. But if he carries on Shabbat, then he can make it even a sixth chatat. So he adds in Shabbat to say that both for Yom Kippur and Shabbat, he should have carrying the Tanakhama or the Rabbanan reject that understanding because, again, ain't no min hashem. is just not what we're dealing with over here. We're dealing with eating and swallowing. And we're not adding in another dimension to this violation. Of course, if he does a million different things, he could have a million chatat. One have it in a single action, a single swallowing, that he will be chayav for all these things. And Hotza adds another malacha that we're not going to worry about. Now the Gemara asks a question according to everyone. Because even the Chachamim agree in principle to what Rabbi Meir says. Famai, why are you chayav for caring? Ha ain't derech Hotzah We had a Mishnah earlier in the Masech that said that putting something in your mouth is not the normal way to carry things. So why over here are you chayav for caring when you have something in your mouth? If you carry it under your arm, we said, or by your elbow, or your foot, those were all unusual ways to carry, and it's patur of al-asur, only asur midi rabbanan. Ella, so what must be the answer here? Since this is your intent, and you want to carry it out in your mouth, that makes it into some place that is significant, that makes it into carrying. Achshavet, you've made it significant now. So to in our case here, where you intend for it to land in the mouth of the dog, that is considered to be a significant location or landing. 
Because that is your intention. So when do we say things are unusual? Things are not anakha. That's when you don't intend for them. When you don't intend for them, then landing in the dog's mouth is not considered to be landing. There's no anakha, because you don't have the requisite four by four tvachim. When you carry something in your mouth accidentally, and you didn't intend to carry it in your mouth, you forgot that something was in your mouth, and you walked out with it, that is not called carrying on Shabbat. That's, that's not the derech to carry. It's not the normal way to carry. But if you intend to carry in your mouth, and that's where you want to carry, that is called carrying on Shabbat. And the same thing over here. If you throw it into the dog's mouth, and that's where you want it to land, that's considered to be landing on Shabbat, even though it doesn't have the requisite 4 by 4 It's fachim. Alright, that's the end of the parak. And then we be in the next parak of Haboneh, which Tosafot just notes here. He says, we have to give some explanation of why this ends up after... The Mlachot of Hota'an Zrikah doesn't seem to be a natural continuum from the previous parts of the Mishnah. It's not even in order in the Mishnah. We know already. So Hota was the last thing mentioned in the Mishnah. So then why is Boneh here? Says they have to try to give some reason for why the Gemara has this order to it. <clears throat> Notwithstanding that, the Mishnah begins. Someone who builds on Shabbat, how much must you build in order to be Chayav on Shabbat? So abone, koshil, any amount. The slightest amount is considered to be bone. There is no minimum shear for bone. Vamisatate, chiseling out a stone to make it smooth or to make it the way you want it. Hamakebe patish, giving the final blow to something that makes it done. Me'atseid, working with a me'atseid, which the translation is an adz, but it's basically a hammer that's used for working metal. Hakodeach koshil, someone who bores or drills any amount is chayav. Now the Bach ends in the word ve, ve'akodea koshu, chayav, because the koshu goes back on all of these items. The koshu is on the misatate, the makeba patish, and the matzei. All of these types of work or activities, any amount will be chayav. What you're chayav for will be discussed in the Gemara. Ze'aklau, this is the principle developed by the Mishnah. Bolosem melacha, anybody does melacha on Shabbat, umelachtom mitkayemet b'Shabbat, and the melacha is permanent it has staying power, then you're chayav. That's the definition of melacha over here. The definition of melacha is that you do something that is an activity, and that activity results in something that now is lasting, something that will remain, not that you did something that's temporary. Also, someone hits with the hammer on the anvil, when he's doing work, because he's fixing something. We'll discuss what he's fixing over here. But smacking the hammer on the anvil where you seem to be doing no work at all. The work is when you hit it on the metal or with the item that you're working on, not when you hit it on the anvil. Nevertheless, Rabbi Shimon says that is a melacha on Shabbat. And Agamar says, Koshu l'may Please explain to me, Abona Koshu, what is it really for? How can you have a building of any amount, the slightest amount, and then be considered culpable for that? What type of permanent building do you do that is the smallest amount? So I'm Rabbi Yomir Guma. That's Niabaprutotav. Because a poor person, his bank is on the floor of his house. He digs a little hole and he puts his money in there to store it. What was the equivalent that was done by the Mishkan? Those that were stitching the burdens, they dig a little hole, that's Niabamachtayam, to store their needles. They had to store their needles somewhere, so they dug a little hole in the ground and put it in there. Nobody would do that, because when you bury things in the ground, there's moisture in the ground that causes them to rust. There is no way that they would bury their needles in the ground knowing that they would rust, because that would ruin them. That can't be the explanation over here. Then what? Alright, so that's a good question. In terms of digging into the ground, the Gemara said before that when you dig into the ground, there are two options about what malacha is. If you're doing it to fix the field, it's a malacha of harisha, of plowing. 
If you're doing it for the purpose of digging the hole, that you need the hole, or you need what's there, then that's called bone So that was the difference between digging a hole in the field and digging a hole in the house. If you dig a hole in the field, then you're chayav for karishah, because you're fixing the field. If you're digging a hole in the house, then you're chayav for bonet. So digging a hole can have a manifestation both in Kharisha and Bonet, depending why you're digging the hole. We did also have it from Malach Hashem Tzvich If you're digging the hole just to get the dirt out, then it would be a Malach Hashem Tzvich But here he wants the hole, because he wants to store the item in the hole. Exactly, and he's going to cover it back up. Ella, shkena ni yoseh pitputei kirak tana svot alea ktera. That a nani, in order to make his stove top, he doesn't have a real stove. What he does is he makes these little legs, and he puts them under the pot to raise the pot off the ground. Then he lights a fire under the pot. The word that Rashi uses is a tripod. So he makes a tripod, the equivalent of what we use a tripod to hold up a pot, like a cauldron that you put on a tripod. Over here, they have these little feet that you put around, three little feet that hold up the pot, and then you would cook under it. The Kavotagavya Mishkan, similar item by the Mishkan is Mivashle Smanim. Those, the dyers, the ones who made the dye, they have to cook up the dyes in order to make them, and then to put the object, the wool, whatever it is in the dye, it's by Yuriot, to color, to dye the curtains. Shechasram Lachtan, they were short, a little bit of dye. Osim Pitputei Kiraktana, In order to finish up the work, they didn't have enough, they just needed a little more. They didn't need to make a huge cauldron worth of it, they just needed a little more. So those who do the same thing the Ani did, which is they'll put up a small pot of dye in order to dye the coloring. Alright, Ravachah Bar Yaakov Amar, Ravachah Yaakov says over here, Ein Aniyot Mukomashibut. This is a tension that comes up a lot in the Gemara and Shabbat, which is that in the building of the Mishkan, they say, there's no poverty in the place of wealth. The Mishkan was built with graciousness, open-handedness, without being miserly or skimpy in any way. So when they built the Mishkan, they didn't skimp on anything. So they would never have run out of dye, because they would have done it in excess. This is a place of royalty, it's a place that's done without any reservations, and therefore when they made the dye, they made excess dye. There was no way they'd be short on the dye. So that can't be the explanation over here. Now, the Gemara has a tension with this because in other places, the Gemara is going to say, Torah had mercy on the money of Klal Yisrael. Why didn't they make certain things out of gold? Why didn't they do this in the Mishkan? Because they didn't want to waste people's money. So that tension comes up in the Gemara where there's this balance between the Torah didn't want people to throw away their money and do things that are going to cost money unnecessarily. But on the other hand, over here, the Gemara has this principle, they did things without being skimpy, and they did it without reservation. And so there is this tension in the Gemara, in the building of the Mishkan, of between not being miserly, but on the other hand, not being wasteful. And so that tension comes up a lot. And here he says, they would have done in excess for the dyes. Ella, shekein balabait, sheishlo nekev bibirato. A balabait who has a little hole in his beautiful house, in his beautiful dining room, visotmo, and he seals it up. Here you want bonet, that's building. Building is you seal up a hole. He has a hole in his dining room, the wall of his dining room, and he wants to seal it up. That is considered to be a malacha bonet. Gabi mishkan. In the mishkan, what was the same malacha? Shenkein keresh. Shnaflau bodarna. If you have a board, a keresh, that had a worm, a woodworm, that got into it and made a hole. Metif Lavar, or lead, molten lead. You drop in lead. Vesotmo. And you seal it up. Sealing up by a molten lead of the boards, that's his equivalent over here, where he's plugging up a hole. Plugging up a hole is bonakoshu, and now we've solved our problem. It's a date at heaven. It's a date over here means to place the foundation stone down. When you place the foundation stone down, all you have to do is wiggle it into place till it's secure and it's sitting flat on the ground. So it's a date is to wiggle or to move it around until it's set. Basically to set the stone, the foundation stones down. 
So then you're chayav according to Shmuel. Mar says, Meitve, is that really true? Echad notenet evan, echad notenet etit. We have a braita that says that one who puts down the stone on the wall, and the other one who puts down the plaster of the cement, notenet etit chayav. The one who puts down the plaster of the cement is chayav, because he's the one who affixes it in place. So it seems from here that simply placing down the stone is not enough. You have to cement it in place in order to be the completion of the melacha. So how could Shmuel say that when you wiggle the stone and make sure that it's sitting properly, that you're chayav? Mar says, litamech. According to you, Ema Seifa. What about the latter half of that Brighta itself? Now, we have an argument, Rabbi Yossi Omer, and Rashi upholds that Girsa. Now then, both Tosafot and the Gra say that Rabbi Yossi Omer is not found. The Gra says it's Yushalmi, it's not found in Yushalmi. Tosafot also says it's not found. And therefore, they eliminate Rabbi Yossi Omer from the Girsa, especially since the Gemara is now about to reconcile between all three of them. So if the Gemara is going to reconcile between all these three cases, it sounds like there's a single author to all three cases. To have Rabbi Yossi be the author of this part of the bright or this piece, then you don't have to reconcile between all three of them. Why do you have to reconcile? It's fine to have him be Rabbi Yossi and he argues on the others. So that's why they eliminate Rabbi Yossi Omer from this part. Because it puts a stone on a row, if you simply put a stone on the row of stones, that's enough to be chayav. So again, how do you reconcile here? You have three different statements about stones. One is you have to be mitzadeid. One is that you have to set the stone in place. The second one says you have to cement the stone. And the third one says you just put a stone on the row and you're done. So each of these sound like that's a malacha, but they're all dealing with stones. How does it work? Ela, tlata, binyone, avu. The three types of building over here. Tata, metzia, ve'ila. The base, the foundation. Metzia, the middle of the wall. Ve'ila, on the top of the wall. Tata, the base or the foundation requires bites today ve'afra. There you have to wiggle it in place. You have to set the stone. The foundation stone has to be set. It doesn't need to be cemented. It's heavy. It's the bigger stone. And all you need to do is get it set. So you have to either put dirt around it, fix the dirt flat in the area out, and make sure that it sits. So once you've done that, set it. That's what Shmuel said. You're a chayav. the middle rows of the wall, bayinamitino. They need not only to have the stones put there, but they have to have something that holds them in place. And that is the cement. The bottom stone is held in place because it's set on the ground. And that's where it's not going anywhere. The stones above that are now, can wiggle, they can be bumped into, they can be knocked over. So there we have to set them and put cement on them. And what about the last case? The last case where all you have to do is put the stone down. That's Eli. The top row of stones, Benachab Alma. You can just place them there. The middle stones have to be straight. And therefore, if the stone's not straight, you have to put cement around it. To find it, you have to put another row on top of it. So if the row is not straight, then the next row will topple over. It won't sit properly. The top row, you're putting nothing else on top of it. So the top row does not have to be exactly straight or exactly in place. And that's why if you simply put the row of stones there, you're going to be chayav, because that's all you need to do for the top row. The roof, right. So the way they set their roofs was they didn't actually, like us, they didn't set them on top of the stones. If you go to Shalim, you can see it all over the place. They bore holes into the stones that are on the side. If you look at the Kotel, there were houses that were up against the Kotel at some point. And you can see that there are holes for beams that are bored in there. And they put the beam and it inserted into the stone. So that they necessarily laid the boards on top of the stone. They actually stuck them into the stone. They bored into the stone to keep them there. And therefore, you wouldn't necessarily need it to be absolutely straight on the top row. But they're heavy. Some should mean that they're heavy enough that they're not going to fall. It's only if you're going to have to place something on top of it, then the unevenness would cause a problem. Right now, we have misatate. Misatate, we said in the Mishnah as chisel. Mishum mai mechayev. Why are you chayav for chiseling a stone? Rav Amar mishum boneh. Rav says it's a problem of boneh, building. Shmuel Amar mishum makabipatish. Problem of finalizing. 
Because whenever you chisel into the stone, that's going to be the last thing you do in terms of this cut. If you cut into the stone, you maintain for that cut to be permanent, and you're not going to go over that cut again. You're not going to go over that chisel again, because that's what you want. You want it to have this cut, or you want it to be smooth over here. Someone who opens up a hole in a chicken coop. That's a problem of building. Problem of Makeb Batish finishing off. And then the last one is Ayo Shufta Bekupina Demara. Someone who puts in the pin to hold this handle of the spade in the spade. So he puts it through the eyelet or the handle of the spade in order to hold it in place. So the spade itself or the rake is made out of a metallic object. And they have a wooden handle that inserts into it. How do you keep the wooden handle inside of the rake or inside of the spade? You have a hole in there, and then you put a pin through to hold it in place. So putting that pin in, according to Rab, is Mishum Boneh. It's a problem of Boneh. Shmuel Amar, Mishum Makeb Patish. Okay, it's a problem of Makeb Patish. Rashi said, on the Mishnah, when it came to the Malach of Makeb he says, what is the example of Makeb in the Mishnah? He says, this is a person who is Mifutzeitz Ibaut Eben Minasela. That Mifutzeitz is a pick that you use to cut into the stone, or a chisel that you're using to cut into the stone. He has a stone that's attached to the wall, and they're quarrying the stone out. And they quarry the stone out, and the last attachment of the stone's there. And he says, that you take a pickaxe, and you smash the stone, and it releases from the wall now. Quarry the stone down to that last piece, and then you smack the stone, and then it comes off. And because that's the final blow that takes the stone away, quarries the stone out, that's called Makebipatish, according to Rashi. That's the example of Makabatish he brings in our Mishnah, the final blow to quarry the stone out, to have it fall away from the wall. Tosafot, on the other hand, says, any Ritheri. The Ri doesn't like that because one big problem, there were no stones in the Mishkan. So where do you have such a malacha in the Mishkan of making stones or doing Makabatish with stones? There is no stone in the Mishkan. It's the final blow to a utensil and making a utensil on Shabbat. This might relate to another malachloka that we saw between Rashi and Tosafot that comes up and why I'm discussing it now is because here you put a pin into the handle of the spade or the rake and we call it bonet. We have a principle in the Gemara and Shabbat in Binyan B'Kelim. There is no such thing as building by Kelim. Building is structures. Kelim, metaltalim, things that move around, that move objects, don't have building. Building is construction. Making of a kli is exactly that. That's a, maybe a craft of some sort, but it's not called bonet. So that's what the Gemara says, ain't binyan bekelim. Rashi takes that literally and says, there is no binyan bekelim. Nowhere. There is no such thing as binyan bekelim. And therefore, maybe the example Rashi gives in the Mishnah, Makkah is a case where he hits it off the wall. On the other hand, Tosafot over here, as well as Tosafot we saw earlier in Masechta, says there is binyan bekelim, but it depends what. Earlier in the Masechta, Tosafot dis- distinguished between fixing a kli that exists already and making a kli from scratch. It says if you make a kli from scratch, that's called binyan bekelim. There is binyan if you form something completely. If you simply fix a kli, then there is no binyan bekelim. That's one distinction he draws. A second distinction he draws here is bends when you are fastening or putting together pieces. For instance, you have component parts of a kli and you put them together. If you simply just put them together, then that's not called binyan bekelim. If you have to do it with both strength and craftsmanship, that is called binyan bekelim. Because you have to actually put them in with force, lock them together, and make it a permanent structure, that there is binyan bekelim. So Tosafot has two exceptions to this binyan bekelim rule. One is that if you form a totally new kli, and if when you place or put the kli together, it's in such a way that you have to do it with force, 
and with craftsmanship so that it's not going to come apart again. It's almost like it's a permanent structure at that point in time. According to Tosafot, that is called Binyan B'Kelim. And that might be why the Makipatish example that he gives in the Mishnah is a case where he's giving the last blow to a Kli to make it. Because he still thinks that that is part of the Binyan B'Kelim. Of course, Rashi is going to agree there by Makipatish. But our Mishnah is a headed by the word Bonet. And so here we're talking about things that are related to Binyan and Bonet. And so because of that, maybe Rashi leaned towards something that's more like construction or, I would say, gross type of hitting. Whereas Tosafot is talking about a finer type of hitting, which is more related to Kilim, where Tosafot believes there is Binyan by Kilim. An alternative explanation for why Rashi switched over to talking about breaking a rock or smashing a rock over here is because back in Paul Gadol, when the Mishnah discussed the Evolve Malachot, he gave the example as Makipatish, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel's opinion in this Mishnah. So he has to give here something that's distinct from the opinion of Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, and therefore he gives the example of the rock instead of that which he gave back on the Mishnah in Klal Gadol. Alright, so now we have these three examples of Machlok between Rav and Shmuel. Gemara says, Vitricha, we need all three of these examples. The Yashmin and Kamaita, if you only taught me about the case of Misatate of Chiseling, Chisel stones in order to make them ready to place them down. Someone makes a whole event out of a chicken coop. That's not the normal way to build. Maybe he agrees to Shmo, that's called Makhev The reason being, according to Tosafot, is because Binyan is a petach. You open up a hole, that's something for exiting and entering. It's both for access and egress. Over here, when you're creating the vent, it's a unidirectional movement through the hole. And therefore, maybe you would have considered it not like binyan. That's why there might be a havamina here that Rav would not classify that as binyan. Had you told me this case, it looks like building the Avde Lavira. Why does he put a hole in the chicken coop? Because he needs a vent in the chicken coop. He needs the air, the bad air, to escape from there. So that's like binyan. Aval shufta bekpina demara, putting the pin in the handle of the spade, the rake, the ain derech binyan bekach. That's not the normal way to build. Eimah modelei the shmuel. There he agrees to shmuel. Biish meinim baha. If you only told him about the case of the spade, baha kamar shmuel. Over there, shmuel says it's makib avadish. The other two cases where rav it looks much more like binyan. Eimah modelei the rav. Maybe he agrees to rav. Tzricha. Each one of these cases is slightly different, and because of that, we wanted to tell you both. Rav's opinion and Shmuel's opinion in all of these cases. But they are consistent in their opinion. Rav always thinks it's Bonet, and Shmuel always thinks that it is Makeh B'Patish. Tzricha, Baimine Rav Natan Baroshia, Me Rabbi Yochanan. Misatet, Mishumayim Mechayev. What is the problem with Misatet, chiseling in the Mishnah? He signed with his hand. He signaled with his hand. He lifted his hand up and down to show that it was Makeh B'Patish. Doesn't our Mishnah say it? This is a little problem. I kind of avoided it when I read the Mishnah. But it's not clear here in the Mishnah how many separate cases you have in the Mishnah. The Mishnah lists out Bone, Makepapatish, which are Malachot. Then it mentions other things like Misatet and Mitzadet and Kodeach. Are they subsets of these categories? Or are they separate Malachot? So over here the Mishnah reads Hamisatet and then Hamakebapatish, which makes it sound like Misatet and Makepapatish are two separate issues. If you think that misatet is a problem with patish, then why write them separately? Ema hamisatet hamakebe patish. Take away the vav there. It's not a separate case, but rather misatet, which is makebe patish. That's the way to read the Mishnah. Tashma. What about akudeach koshu chayav? The next line in the Mishnah is katudeach koshu, someone who drills all. Bishlam al-Rav mechzeg man dechar chur tele binyana. 
It looks like you're drilling a hole for a building. Now the Gemara here uses the term mechzeh, that it looks like binyan. The Gion HaShem's Rabbi Kiva Eger says that it's lavdafko, and it really is a malacha. On the other hand, Tosafot over here tries to explain why it's mechzeh and not exactly, because it's a koldu. It's not exactly like drilling a hole into the chicken coop, because over here you're going to plug the hole in the end. But since Rav already said, or we've already heard from Rav, that such small types of holes are classified as building, so soot over here, since it looks similar to that, we're also going to classify it as building. That's not the final thing. When you drill a hole, why do you drill a hole? We'll see in one second. Preference is difference between what we call a nekev and kodeach. Rashi says here that the Mishnah or the Gemara uses different terms for drilling holes and for making holes that you're going to fill. If you want a hole to remain there and you're drilling simply for the hole, that's called a nekev. A nekev is something where you want the hole and you drill for a hole. Kodeach, drilling or boring, is where you make a hole in order to fill it afterwards. So if you're here in the Mishnah, it says kodeach koshu, means that you've now made a hole in the wall, but you intend to fill the hole with something. You're going to put in a peg to hang things on. You're using the hole for a purpose of placing something in it. That makes a big difference. For Rav, who says the problem with the drilling hole is bonet, that's no problem. Because bonet doesn't have to be the final piece of the malacha. It has to be something that you're doing in order to be building. So over here, it looks like you're building. You're drilling a hole in there, and then you're going to put a peg in it, so you're making something in that building. That's fine. According to Shmuel, says the problem of Kodeach, or in the Mishnah here, is Makibipatish. When you make a hole in the chicken coop, for example, that is a problem of Makibipatish. Over here, you don't have Makibipatish. Because you still have to plug the hole. And that's not the final action. The drilling of the hole is not the final stage. There's another stage afterwards. And that can't be Makebe Patish. How are we going to explain it? He pierced it with a iron pick or a nail. And then he left it there. So you want to hang up a picture. You want to make a hook on the wall. You bang a nail into the wall. And you leave the nail there sticking out. And you hang it on the nail. So there, simultaneous with the boring of the hole, you also fill the hole. Because you're making the hole and filling it at the same time, and then it will be that will be the final stage, and therefore it'll be Makeh Vipatish. So that's how Shmuel will explain it. Just to note, according to both Shmuel and Rav, the Mishnah does not read smoothly. Because you have a bone koshu, hamisatate, which according to Rav is both inyane of bone. Then you have Makeh Vipatish, which is a totally different thing. And then you have Me'atseid and Kodeach, which are going back to Bonet again. And for Shmuel, it's even more problematic. In terms of it being Bonet Koshu, then Misatate is Makeh Vipatish. Makipatish. For neither of them does the mission read smoothly because of the way it's laid out that you have Bonem and Makipatish are spread out across the Mishnah. Alright, Zaklal, I'll just finish up to the Mishnah here. This is the principle. Zaklal et Yemai. Again, this is a format of the Bavli. And you shall me, they don't ask this question. Zaklal is, that's the general principle. The Mishnah is telling you what we can deduce from all this. We'll give you a principle to work with. The Bavli says, if it says Zaklal, it must be coming to include something else beyond that. And what is that? Latuye dachak kapiza bekabo. If you have a block of wood, and a person carved out a kapiza. Kapiza is a measuring cup that measures to three log, but the block of wood that he has measures to a kav, which is four log. So he only carves out three out of the four log. Now, in its state now, it's usable for three log. But the wood is the size that you would carve out a kav, four log. The Gemara is coming to say that that's considered to be a Gemara Malacha, and you will be chayab for it, because people will use it here. People will stop here, even though there are some who will continue to make it into four log. Nevertheless, it's usable, and people use it with three log. Therefore, you're going to be chayab over here from Makeb Patish, because you dug out the three log over here. You hit with the hammer on the anvil. What malacha are you doing? We asked this when we read the Mishnah. He's hitting the anvil. That's not doing malacha. So Rabbah 
Rabbi Yosef, Amrei Tarvayo, they both say, Amen Ityado, that he's practicing, he's getting his arm ready. The smack on the anvil is in preparation for his next hit on the metal. So in order to make sure that he can hit the metal properly, he has to hit there first, in order to test whether he's hitting hard or soft. And you see that anytime they have a blacksmith, somebody's working with the metal, they smack the anvil, and then they hit the metal to keep themselves in a pace or a certain amount of force that they're bringing down on the metal. Kashiba b'nei rechava. B'nei rechava did not like that explanation because elamiato. That's the case. Chazom nata b'shabbat v'gamar hachinami to bichayev. If you're watching a craftsman work on Shabbat and you learn from that craftsman, you're going to be chayav on Shabbat. So over here, if practicing or getting your hand ready for the malacha is considered malacha on Shabbat, they're going and sitting and watching a craftsman work and learning from him should also be considered malacha on Shabbat. You're learning, you're practicing, you're getting ready to do something. So maybe that should be considered a malacha. Again, I don't know if it's a full-fledged question, a strong enough question. In one case, you're doing an action. In one case, you are simply watching and learning. But given that, they offer an alternative, which is, The problem here is, Those that were working with the plating in the mishkan. Remember the krashim, the wooden boards were plated with gold. So in order to make plating, you have to flatten out the gold. You have to pound the gold down to be flat. So when they used to hit then, pound down the gold to be flat, they used the anvil as well. Because what the fear is, if you're pounding on the metal to get it thin and to be plating, if for any reason the hammer has an imperfection in it, it will cut through the metal and you will leave a hole in the metal. So what they keep doing is hitting the anvil in between every two or three times to make sure that the hammer is completely flat and the surface is flat. So when they hit the metal, they will simply be flattening it and not puncturing the metal plating that they're making. So here you have it to be explicit. The reason for the pounding on the anvil being a malacha is because that is part and parcel of the malacha of doing the plating is that you hit the anvil to ensure that the hammer is flat. So that is makebepatish. You're making sure that the hammer is flat before you hit the plating that is there. It's interesting that Rashi notes over here that in his area or in his town that the minters of coins actually did this. They used to hit when they were flattening out or pounding down the coins to mint them. They used to hit on the anvil once and then hit on the coins in order to make sure that the hammer was in the right position or the mold was in the right way before they hit it down. Rashi says that as an example as to what happened in the Mishkan with Garbei Makev Patish. Okay, we'll stop over here. Wait, we have to go back. Mishkan, we're talking about Avot Melachot over here, so we're talking about Bonet. So the example that the Gemara gives for Bonet in the end is something that was a hole and then you fill the hole. That's called Bonet, and that they did have in the Mishkan. That's the Av Malacha. We're talking about a Tolada, it doesn't have to be in the Mishkan. So when you're talking about things like Misatate and so on and so forth, that doesn't have to be in the Mishkan. Tosavot's claim against Rashi is Makeba Patish, which is one of the Avot Malachot. Over there, Rashi's talking about stones in Makeba Patish. How can we be talking about stones when we're talking about the Mishkan? So again, if it's a Tolada, you don't have a question, because that doesn't have to be in the Mishkan. When you're talking about Av, that does have to be in the Mishkan. That's why Tosavot did not like Rashi's explanation. Gold, gold plated, yeah. Yeah, everything was gold around them. The tabaot were made out of gold, and the plating, they're plating on them of gold. The easy way to remember it is that anything that faced the inside of the Mishkan was gold, anything that faced the outside was copper. It's just a way to remember it. So, for instance, the lower curtains, the Yuriyota Mishkan, when they had the krasim, they had hooks to hold the two pieces together, the five and the five, they were gold hooks. The second layer, which is the Yuriyota Izim, when they had the hooks, they were copper hooks, because they cannot be seen from the inside. So to anything that can be seen, the krasim that can be seen from the inside, they have gold plating on them. The uh, Amudim. The Amudim of the Mishkan inside. No, oh, those are the difference. There's the, there are Krashim, which are the boards that are the Mishkan around the outer side of the Mishkan. Inside the Mishkan, there are things called Amudim that hold up the curtains in the Mishkan that separates. So we're there too. Those Amudim, whether they're made out of gold or copper, 
are the hooks and they're made of gold and copper. It has to do with whether they're on the inside or the outside. So it's an easy way to remember when they use gold and when they use copper. <laughs>